Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of Eco Business. Today we're going to talk about what Asia could be like in the near future if the region continues on the same development path that it's on now. Currently, Asia is struggling to meet any of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that chart a course for green, inclusive growth over the next 10 years. Progress made at reducing poverty and improving food security has come with environmental and social costs, and the region is doing particularly badly at advancing responsible consumption and production and climate action as greenhouse gas emissions rise and tropical forests fall. Meanwhile, the COVID-19 pandemic has put a lot of progress into reverse. A new report by Fair Finance Asia, a network of NGOs pushing for responsible finance, looks at the role banks play in Asia's development and what could happen if Asia fails to allocate capital in the right areas over the next decade. What's holding the region's banks back from adopting sustainable lending practices? And what sort of impact could COVID-19 stimulus measures have on the behaviour of Asia's banks? Joining the podcast to talk about Asia's future and the role that banks play in it is Bernadette Victoria, Regional Programme Lead for Fair Finance Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Bea. Thank you, Robin. Um, Very happy to be here and thanks for having me. Indeed. Thanks so much for joining us. So, first of all, can you outline a few of the scenarios that we may see in 10 years' time if banks don't support the future we need them to? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Robin. Um, In the report, we actually uh, lay out two possible scenarios that could happen in the next 10 years. Um, One is, of course, um, the more grim scenario in which no or um, very little concrete action is taken by stakeholders, especially banks, um, to move towards the direction of sustainability. Um, And it basically predicts, um, and this is not even a prediction, we already know that in the next 10 years, um, ASEAN plus countries where Fair Finance Asia countries are situated, um, are not able to meet their commitments towards the SDGs as well as the Paris Climate um, Agreement. Um, The other side of that is, of course, um, a scenario wherein um, the banks pay attention um, and take actions towards um, building a more sustainable finance sector across Asia. And this is, of course, in line um, with their peers in the regulatory and supervisory functions, um, thereby phasing out financing activities um, that lead to climate change, environmental degradation, and other social problems that compound those um, issues. Um, And obviously, that's the more hopeful um, side of um, the story that we're trying to tell and basically forms the the basis for our recommendations. I would actually also like to point out that, um, you know, the scenarios that we put forward here are not scenarios that haven't been heard of before. So um, when we put together the scenarios here, there's already many of these scenario building activities that have been done by many international organizations such as World Economic Forum, the UN. Um, and we are just basically compiling these scenarios and, and putting them in perspective for the ASEAN audience. Um, and these are, you know, many of us think of it as very far away future, 
but we can already see the extreme weather conditions, for example, three typhoons hitting the Philippines in the last 17 days. This is already telling us that <laughs> the climate change that we are you know, thinking about happening in the next 10 years is already here. And how would that impact us in the next 10 years if it continues to worsen? I mean, I think the very clear picture we can paint in Asia, uh, for example, is the loss of outdoor jobs. Um, our societies in Asia are very dependent to outdoor jobs. We think about the tuk-tuks. We think about the food markets, the hawker food markets. We think about tourism in this part of the world. And these are all in outdoor you know, um, places. What happens when there are rising seawater? What happens when there are floods and typhoons? What happens to the economies of these societies that are actually built around this whole culture, this whole you know, livelihood um, type of settings? Um, and more importantly, we, we highlight these issues around environmental degradation and climate change, but we also try to point out in this report, which is not really necessarily done by other reports before, to also look into the social um, scenarios that could happen out of this. You know, the great migration um, that could happen, you know, um, uh, as a result of rising seawater levels, um, the refugee situation in the region, you know, um, being aggravated, and all the other government um, issues that could arise from this. And we are already seeing, you know, um, countries becoming more conservative across the world and in Asia, nonetheless. So what would be the impacts of those um, coming from these um, extreme weather conditions, but also impacting the economies? So these are the, some of the issues that we really want to highlight in this report that are not super far away. They're actually within the next 10 years. They could already happen. One of the scariest things about the report that some of the incidences and scenarios mentioned in it are already playing out, as you mentioned. Um, now, the, the report warns that uh, such a future of social injustice and environmental tragedy um, will also be bad for banks, just as it is um, worrying for people and the planet. Can you explain why this is and the problems that banks will face over the next decade if they continue business as usual? Well, basically, we look at the impacts for banks in three categories, which is basically um, credit risks, market risks, and operational risks. Um, and obviously, um, the credit risks will be that banks will be facing unexpected problems in their loan portfolios um, or loans to companies and activities that will be hit by these um, extreme weather events, disasters, floods, droughts, um, and potentially even protests and sanctions against social exploitation. Um, and therefore, swift action is really needed to stop you know, um, these um, issues from um, you know, growing and contributing more to the growing poverty and inequality, which also could you know, um, contribute to what we call you know the transitional risks in between, but we also look at you know market changes, um, which will be the impact of these um, extreme conditions um, um, towards the change of prices, production, and supply chains, for example. Um, and ultimately, it looks at you know the exposure of banks towards operational risks, which are basically the more you know um, a physical risk for them. So, for example, being cities where um, this rising sea waters could could basically um, close down their buildings or 
having more clients that are too poor even to access banking services and having defaulting loans um, and less profitable clients, essentially. So these are the type of um, risks that we are trying to highlight towards the banks. And obviously, um, overall, it's also reputational risks that the more they pay less attention to the issues that we are talking about and the greater awareness that is being raised not only in Asia, but around the world, around these issues, they also tend to lose out. One of the things that I found quite frustrating about the report is the question is, why aren't the risk assessment models of banks in the country's uh, FFA covers and the report factoring in impacts from climate yet? First of all, it's because there is no mandatory regulation um, that makes them do so. So they basically just have no obligation to comply. Um, and secondly, because many of these banks are still focusing on short-term gains, um, which is very much due to the uh, competition um, and, and shareholder pressures that they have. Um, and obviously, you know, um, with um, the COVID pandemic, um, you know, highlighting the issues um, around um, the aggravation of the impacts around social issues and environment risks, um, you know, these um, risks models are basically highlighting also the fact that the banks never had these um, uh, assessment models in, in place. Uh, uh, from the outset, and that basically they are now even using um, the COVID pandemic as a, you know, a pretext to go on survival mode, which is not even helping us to move towards the future that we're trying to um, see more sustainability um, risks uh, factored into their um, models. And so basically, um, we also see that you know um, the banks haven't really faced a lot of um, reduction in the profitability of companies um, and banks. Even that the, uh, during the pandemic, governments are paying for the cleanups. Governments are supporting the poorest and, and low wage earners, and banks have never really had you know an exposure to take responsibility for these um, type of. Um, externalities, these type of impacts that they do have directly down the supply chain. And so we really see that these are the issues why the banks in the region, especially in a fair finance Asia countries, are not uh, putting these risk assessment models in place. Um, what do you see as the main barriers to uh, sustainable finance, the adoption of it in Asia? And, and why do you think, Bayer, that the region has been relatively slow to adopt green finance? Well, sustainable finance at the current moment is um, seen as an additional cost, um, basically because to implement it, banks have to go through more thorough assessments. You know, they require more information from potential borrowers. Um, they need independent reviews, certifications. Um, and if they're looking through the, the short-term lens, obviously um, the other banks that are not putting sustainability into their objectives that are not doing this, um, then they, they think that, you know, they're losing um, their competitiveness against those banks. Um, but, I think it's it's also important to um, you know ensure that these banks are educating their staff. You know, there we already see that many of the financial institutions around the world are joining you know um, voluntary. Uh, 
commitment platforms like the UNPRB's Equator Principles. And there is more and more awareness on the impacts of their businesses, their, their financing towards um, you know, social and environmental issues in the world. But um, how fast that uh, education is trickling down or that awareness is trickling down this, their financial uh, staff from the top management down is not fast enough. Um, and so this is also what we're trying to put this recommendation here um, that you know, banks should make sure that they resource their um, um, risk assessment departments, their ESG um, research departments to ensure um, that they are really um, making um, proper um, assessments and, and um, mitigation uh, frameworks here. One of the big areas of, of contention um, is the financing of coal. I think that's the big one, at least that, that's in the, the media spotlight at the moment. Why are banks funding coal and the risks around funding coal? Um, one area is, one theory that I've heard is that the longer that some banks stay in the coal game, the more money they actually stand to make, the higher the, the cost of capital will be, so the, more, the, the bigger the profits will be that they make from funding coal, which is a, a tough obstacle to shift, right? Um, what, what do you say to that argument, Bayer, and what we can do to, to shift that, uh, that argument? Mm -hmm. um, in the very short term, um, there actually might be some benefits to staying in the coal sector, um, but we also have to take note that in the real world, there's already, you know, um, real life cases where we see, you know, um, many of um, the bigger financial institutions around the world pulling out of new coal fired power plant projects. And therefore, we are, um, you know, soberly positive that as climate change awareness um, accelerates, there will be more regulations and market changes, for example, making renewable energy cheaper option towards uh, compared to coal. And this will make coal-based industries um, you know, redundant and unattractive for future um, uh, funding or financing by financial institutions financial institutions. Also, um, you know, direct climate impacts from the coal industry will continue to affect banks, um, especially reputationally, as, as we mentioned, you know, with a growing awareness, with more civil society and shareholder pressure um, that we are seeing growing um, over the last few years. Indeed, we've seen um, a lot of banks um pull out of coal as a direct result where you would imagine you would imagine from civic society pressure um they've done in fact i think they've done a, a fairly successful job um your sector of pressuring banks to move away from coal which has been great to see so mm -hmm. so now Bea, can you outline a few of the ways that banks need to change to bring out bring about a more hopeful future for the region Mm -hmm. um, these actually form um, some of the key recommendations in the report. Um, basically, we're asking banks um, to take strategic decisions that come from the top and being operationalized down to the bottom um, to adapt risk assessment methodologies that do not only look at risks for the bank, but also impacts towards society. To look forward um, towards sustainability information, evidence that is being provided by different stakeholders, including the civil society. Um, 
we called on financial institutions to obviously phase out their lending and underwriting services towards harmful environments, um, towards harmful indust uh, industries um, that are uh, impacting environmental and social uh, activities in, in the region and around the world. Um, and we are actually calling for the development of new sustainable financial products and loans that would help you know, redirect capital financing towards more sustainable practices, more sustainable companies, companies that are really trying to um, you know, um, adhere to ESG um, standards. And last but not the le least, um, to promote greater transparency and consultation with stakeholders, including the civil society. Um, this is something that we see, you know, um, there's growing momentum around the world, but there is um, really room for improved um, um, co collaboration here. And more importantly, we also recognize that while, you know, the focus of this study is obviously the activities of the banks, this is also a wake-up call to the regulators, you know, um, because in the end, the banks are always, you know, potentially going to choose the more voluntary options um, to adhere to sustainable practices. But the regulators, particularly in Asia, have, you know, an opportunity to level the playing ground and to provide the mandatory regulations, even to create the most minimum requirements to ensure that there is, you know, a clear taxonomy understanding of what are, you know, um, the harmful practices and how to avoid them, putting, you know, requirements for mandatory disclosures. Um, and these are the things that we really uh, would like to, um, you know, um, catalyze these discussions as a result of this report. Indeed, regulation um, sorely needed. And indeed, you mentioned the harmonization of regulation as well. One thing that's been ha that's happened in Europe, which is interesting, is a common taxonomy for sustainable finance that is expected to, to push more capital into the right areas. So what are your hopes for such a common taxonomy for, uh, working in this region, Bea? Uh, we are trying to be soberly hopeful here, um, but we think that with the momentum that's happening around Asia, particularly in the countries where Fair Finance Asia is present, um, we are very hopeful that um, the regulators that are already putting in place sustainability frameworks will continue to, you know, um, make sure that these frameworks turn into actual regulations, um, binding regulations that are actually looking into the specific sectorial priorities in the region. I mean, Europe is obviously a very influential region uh, with some of the biggest you know, financial institutions that are even invested or financing many of um, the companies and projects in Asia. But at the same time, Asia is also having its very unique landscape and context where we have many of our industries, um, you know, especially focused on agriculture, especially focused on even industries like coal, where we have citizens living in communities that are highly dependent in these sectors that we are trying to face out. And therefore, the transition towards, you know, um, ensuring that those communities are transitioning towards sustainability together with the banks, together with the governments, is going to be 
slightly different from this picture we see in Europe. And therefore, we encourage our Asian you know, regulators and leaders to pay greater attention to these type of differences and develop a, you know, a level of cooperation that takes into account our unique landscape and co- cooperate based on that. So FFA's report again serves as a warning of what the future could be like. And it, it does look pretty bleak if we stick with business as usual. But Bayer, um, aren't the net zero commitments that we've seen from countries such as China, Japan, um, Korea recently, um, give us reason to be optimistic that the region's banks will have to embrace sustainable finance to help their countries meet these commitments? Yes, definitely. Um, We definitely welcome these commitments and we see them as steps towards the right direction. But as Fair Finance Asia, we also believe that no country can meet their own targets on their own. China cannot meet targets on its own. Japan cannot do it on its own. Korea cannot do it on its own. They have to bring the whole region with them, especially the developing countries um, that are so intertwined with their own economies that are dependent into these uh, supply chains that are, you know, um, partnering with them in so many of these sectors that they are invested in financing in. Um, so they have to really definitely work with these countries in, in order for their own commitments to be met. And here we really see that regional cooperation um, and, and um, policy coordination is very important, not only at the regulatory level, but also, of course, between banks um, themselves. That's really interesting. So final question for you, Bayar. Um, Are you an optimist Um, and how hopeful are you that the region's banks can make the necessary changes to avoid some of the predictions laid out in the report? I'd like to think of myself as a pragmatic optimist. I think that um, if if banks are um, moving towards the direction uh, of commitments that are really moving their operations towards sustainability, um, even in small steps, then we can get there. Um, I think it is no longer um, acceptable for financial institutions, even governments, to use COVID as a pretext to say that we are taking survival strategies um, for post-COVID recovery. Rather, we should be using the the COVID um, as a pretext to really look into how we can, you know, change our direction and not go back to business as usual. And if we do that, I think together, we are able to really um, use this opportunity rather than, um, yeah, seeing ourselves 10 years down the road into um, these very uh, deep social and environmental problems because we didn't make the change we have to do now. Absolutely. So it's critical now, isn't it? But um, as you said, it's no longer acceptable to use COVID as an excuse to avoid green recovery measures. Um, Bea, thank you very much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you so much, Robin. And um, yeah, I hope um, definitely we see the change that we want to see together in the future of green and um, sustainable recovery and financing in Asia. 
This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.